Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But today, like a lot of beginners can expect to get paid anywhere between $75 and $150 for an article of about a thousand words. And that's beginner. And that's for kind of beginning article, specifically in the personal finance space. My rate starts closer to $450 to $500 for an article of that length. And then if you want me to actually interview sources, it's going to cost more. So it just sort of depends on what you're doing. It's still, to some degree, the Wild West out there. And it also depends on the niche you're in and the kind of writing you're doing. If I'm writing a press release or marketing copy, then I'm getting up closer to a dollar per word because that's very specialized writing. If you're doing white papers, that's technical writing. You can get paid more. I mean, some technical writers get paid two or $3 per word. If you're ghostwriting a book. So there's a lot in there and there's a lot of space in there. And what you get depends on the outlet, the niche, the type of writing you're doing, your experience level, and whether or not you have credentials. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business, so you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. 
Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, and as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. Miranda, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Hey, thank you so much for having me on, Eunice. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) I was mentioning before we hopped on the recording that I feel like I'm hosting a legend in the personal (laughs) finance space because you've literally been writing about money on the internet since it was cool. Like since before it was cool, back in like 2006. So yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm an internet dinosaur. uh, (laughs) It is what it is. (laughs) When I have the privilege to talk to people who've been doing this for so long, you have the ability to provide really like unique insight into to your journey and also just how you've seen the overall space kind of evolve over time. So definitely want to get to know you and your backstory more. Let's start off with a little bit of an introduction. Just tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah. So as you said, I am Miranda Marquette. I write and podcast about money on the internet. So that's kind of the short version. I am a freelancer. So I do freelance writing. I also do freelance podcasting. So I am a freelance podcast host, which means I get paid to podcast, which is awesome. Hashtag living the dream. (laughs) 100%. And so, yeah, I do have a journalism background. That's kind of how I started with the freelance writing is that I do have a journalism background. I do have a radio background, which is why I also gravitated toward podcasting. So those two things kind of mesh together. And then a couple of years ago, I decided that might as well get something that looks like I know what I'm talking about when it's about money. And so I went ahead and completed uh, my master's of business, business administration. So I have an MBA. So there's a lot going on there. And I like to think though, that where most of my money knowledge comes from is the fact that when I first started writing about money, I didn't know anything about money other than I should save some money, I should spend less than I earn. And I didn't know anything about investing. I didn't have any sort of philosophy around money. It was just kind of doing what I was told I was supposed to do by my parents. And so having this opportunity and having somebody kind of dump personal finance in my lap forced me to speak with experts, do my own research, and then start doing my own experiments and then develop my own money style that fits with my life. So it's been a fun journey and it's taken the better part of two decades, but here we are. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) And there's so much to dive into that. So let's start off with your money story. As a kid growing up, Mm -hmm. what were some of the messages that you got about money? 
Yeah. So I always like to talk about how, like, I am very mediocre with my money. Everything about me is it's mediocre money. I had a mediocre amount of debt during college. I had a very like mediocre money childhood where like my parents weren't terrible with money. My parents were actually pretty good with money, but they didn't really talk about investing with me or really impart like how to make credit work for you or anything like that. It was just basically like, here's what we save. Here's what we spend. Here's, it was just a very like, basic upbringing. And like, I don't have any true trauma around it. When I was younger, when I was in elementary school, my parents did live at the poverty level. But by the time I graduated high school, my dad had gotten a new job. We were living the upper middle class lifestyle. And so, but the story I told myself was more along the lines of these are the things I'm supposed to do. And I have to follow this track. I have to, and I did actually, did actually follow this track, go to college get married, maybe have a job, set aside some money for the future, have some kids, buy a house, and then just do that for 30 or 40 years. And that's really kind of what I thought I was supposed to do. But then when I started learning about money, that's when I was like, okay, there are some things that my parents, even though they were very smart with their money, and my parents had investments in their retirement accounts, but they never talked to me about investing, but I started right. learning about investing. And that's when I started going, okay, I can do things different. I started doing online content creation because I wanted to earn money while I was staying at home and my ex-husband was going to school. And so then I started getting into this whole world of, wait a minute, I don't have to have a nine to five job. I don't have to work the same way I'm told I was had to work. We bought a house. I hated owning a house. I did not enjoy owning a house. It was like the worst thing ever. And I hated every second of it. And when I got a chance to live in a luxury apartment after we sold the house, I was like, this is the life for me. And then I got a divorce and I had to start all over again. And so through all of this, like my money story has changed as we go along. But once again, it's nothing, it's nothing super exciting. But I think from one standpoint, it also illustrates how like, hey, you can be fairly ordinary and still get to do cool things. Like I travel several times a year. I have a very flexible work schedule and I get to kind of design the life I enjoy li living. So to me, it's been a good journey and I've been very fortunate. Yeah. And I love the journey that you painted for us because while we're doing all of these things with money, life is also happening. And I think sometimes people forget that. You plan your financial trajectory at any given time of your life, assuming a lot of shit that <laughs> may or may not pan out in the future, right? Like I'm right. sure when you got married, you did not plan to get divorced. You didn't plan to hate home ownership until you did it. And sometimes we can, I think, get paralyzed by the imaginary finiteness of some of the decisions that we make. How did you give yourself permission to like adapt your money to the fact that your life changes? Yeah, I think part of it was just kind of looking at what I was supposed to do and how following that script wasn't fulfilling for me. And like, I know people who follow their, the script that they're given or that society gives them or that their parents give them or that their religion gives them or whatever it is, wherever that script come from, comes from. I know people that follow that script and they are fulfilled and they are happy and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I'm not going to take that away from them. Like I, I have cousins and, and people in my life that I love who are kind of still following that same path and progress and they are happy and they are thriving and it works for them. But for me, I just realized it's not working for me. I have ADHD. Having a nine to five job is does not work for me. <laughs> like 
My job does not work to me. The freelancing does work for me because I'm doing different things and there's some different interests I can pursue. And if I, if I get distracted, I could go do something else for a minute until I'm ready to focus again. And so the freedom and flexibility that comes with what I do has been a real help. So yeah, a lot of it was just realizing like, hey, the script may work for some people and fulfill some people and that's great. It is not working for me. About seven years into home ownership was when things like, oh, the toilets are getting all, the toilets are getting janky and awful. We're going to have to replace all the, to how much is that going to cost? <laughs> oh my gosh. And we did, we did a carpet replacement, like a flooring replacement. And I was just like, this costs a lot of money and I don't like this. And so there's just all of those things. And I know people that love homeownership and they love projects around their house and they love changing this and doing that. And that's awesome for them. Not me. I am just like, oh, the walk needs to be shoveled. That blows. And I want somebody else to do it. And that's why I live in an apartment. We are kindred and, spirits in that way. Right. And so, and that's kind of why I think like for me, the permission was more like saying, wait a second, this isn't working for me. I am not happy with this. I am not fulfilled with this. How do I mix it up? How do I create a life that I enjoy living? How do I create something that fulfills me? And how do I do it without going broke? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't wait to dive more into this idea of lifestyle design and using money, but I would love to know more first about your career in this personal finance space. So you mentioned when you started working in the personal finance space, you didn't know shit about money. In what context were you like with an actual like news outlet or how did you get started? Yeah. So when I started back in the dawn of the age of the internet, uh, no, like content marketing was just barely getting started and off the ground in like 2004 to 2006, right? There weren't a lot of news outlets putting stuff on there, but there were a lot of free-for-all content farms where you could just submit stuff and they'd pay you a ridiculously like low fee of somewhere between five and $25, but then you'd get revenue sharing from the views that it, it generated. I would get up and I would just be like, okay, and actually, I started out as a science writer. So that's the other thing. I actually started out as a science writer. So my first gigs were from J school. I had a friend who went to work as an editorial assistant at Discover Magazine. And so he tossed me some front of the book, some short front of the book pieces for Discover Magazine. So that wasn't online. That was print. But he tossed me a few of those so that I could like earn a little money. I started writing for physics.org was getting on there and trying to do like sciencey things and get the science out to people. And so I was originally a physics major. This has been a long, strange trip to personal finance. Anyway, I was originally a physics major. And so, and I love science. And so I started doing science writing. And so I did, I, I wrote for physics.org. And then I wrote for a couple of technology websites. And to kind of fill in the gaps, I would go to these content mills and content places to just churn out, like I'd finish the client work. If I still had time available for writing, like my son was still down for his nap, or if he was at preschool, I would just like churn out a couple of these crappy articles, submit them, get my instant pay, and then wait for the recurring revenue to roll in. And one day, somebody who was on one of these platforms noticed that I was very consistent in posting because I needed the money. And so I was posting between one and three articles per day, depending on how it all worked. And so so she noticed that. So she messaged me through the platform and said, Hey, I am looking for somebody who is consistent 
and reliable and mostly facts checks their stuff because I mean, this was the wild west. People were like, the Grand Canyon is in Colorado. It's like, oh my gosh. She's just like, you're accurate. You're consistent. Blogs are going to be the next big marketing thing. Like we all are rec- like today, online content recognition. We're like, yes, obviously blogs are part of online content marketing. It was not the case back in the day. Like WordPress didn't exist. So she's just like, well, we have a retirement company that we are going to provide content for, for the corporate blog. And then we have a Forex market maker that wants content. And she's like, I would like you to provide this because we need somebody who can get on there and post every day. And they were offering better pay than I was getting in the content mill. And I was like, yeah, I I was just like, just as you know, I don't know anything about money. And she's just like, well, you're right about science. I've seen some of your stuff. She's like, you're right about science and science and money. It's all just math. You'll be fine. (laughs) And she's like, you have a journalism degree. You could research this shit. It's going to be fine. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, we'll give it a try. And that's how I started writing about personal. And then somebody found, and then from there, this business website for business owners found what I was writing about retirement. And they wanted somebody who was like, okay, well, we want you to write about personal finance for business owners. We don't want you to write about business, but we want you to write personal finance for people who own their own businesses. And so then that's how I started writing for there. And it just sort of snowballed and more people saw my, it was easier for people to see my stuff because there was a lot less stuff on the internet. Kind of from there, it just sort of snowballed. And then we had the rise of individual personal finance blogs. And once those guys started making a bunch of money, they wanted to outsource some of their writing. So then they would hire me to provide content for their blogs. And I think Somewhere around 2010 or 2011, a few of us looked around. We looked at everything that I was ghostwriting and also everything I had my byline on. And we were going, I think maybe 50% of the personal finance content on the internet is written by Miranda. Oh my God. We were just like, it was crazy. Now, of course, I'm just a drop in the bucket because there are so many websites. There's so much content out there. There's so much going on, but it's just been fascinating. Yeah. And so at what point did you decide to now become like your own brand, right? And your own expert versus contributing to other platforms? Yeah. So I still contribute to other platforms, but yeah, no, I had been writing for other platforms without my own real blog. Like I had a basic portfolio site where I was just like, MirandaMarquette.com, here's links to my stuff. But at the first FinCon in 2011 in Chicago, when I met Tom Drake in person, because we'd been like corresponding online together for a long time. But when I first met him in person, he's the one that said, Hey, you should know that you have a personal brand. People in this space know who you are. They know who you are as a person and you should probably start your own personal finance website. And you should probably write about money on your own and like start developing your own like kind of philosophy. And I was just like, okay. So I did. I started, I started my first personal finance blog five years after I was writing about money on the internet. And, but then I realized that the content that got the most interest from other people was when I would occasionally write about running my freelance business and writing about how my freelancing business worked and how I managed my business and all that kind of stuff. So I set up a separate blog for the freelancing. And then three or four years ago, I decided it was too much of a hassle to have it all separate. And I just merged it all. So now it's all in one place. It's all just at MirandaMarkwood.com. And you can choose to look at like how I've evolved my investing, or you could choose to look at how I run my freelance business and you can kind of decide or both, you know, do whatever you want there. I'm not going to tell you how to use my website, but yeah, just sort of 
snowballed as we kind of went through. Yeah. I love that. It's awesome that you've been able to make this such a long-term sustainable project for yourself, right? Because when I hear the word freelancer, and I think a lot of people would agree, we almost think that it means you do it on the side. It's not necessarily <laughs> a career. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I call it kind of jobbing writing. And I think the main difference here, because a lot of people are like, oh, well, you can't make money as a writer unless you have like a spouse that has, you know, and I was the primary breadwinner for the, my entire marriage. Um, I still make more than my ex does. And so being able to do that kind of goes back to me just sort of saying, okay, I'm going to call myself a jobbing writer. And some of the stuff I write is just going to suck, right? It's like, nobody likes writing shitty SEO articles, but <laughs> it's what you get paid to do. So right. you're going to do it. And I think that's kind of where that mindset goes is it's like, yes, do I like writing? Yes. Do I always like what I'm writing about? No. And I do. I treat it kind of like a job. It's a job that I only have to do two or three hours a day, Yeah, but I still treat it like a job. And actually, I'm to the point now where I've gotten far enough along in my career and I live in a, such a low cost of living area that I honestly only do client writing two or three days a week. And I'm usually done before lunchtime. Mm -hmm. And then everything else I do is working on podcasting or writing a book or doing a mini course or all of the volunteer work I do in my community as a member of nonprofit boards. So all of that stuff, you know, going and getting my nails done, hiking, camping, all of that stuff is stuff I can do in the interim because like people are always just like, well, if you're not doing that freelance writing all day, every day, like, what are you doing with your time? And I'm like, whatever the fuck I want. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is the goal, right? That's the power of money. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about that because this idea of lifestyle design and giving yourself flexibility and freedom using the power of money is something that a lot of folks dream about, but it's like, okay, where the hell do I start? So how did you start? I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah. So I started with the freelance writing mostly because for me, it really was starting because my I had finished my first master's degree. My ex was working on his PhD and we needed a way to make money while he was doing that. And I didn't want to go into nine to five. I had a toddler. I wanted a way to stay home. And so I knew writing would be able to do that. I knew I could be a freelance writer. I just finished my journalism degree. And so I knew I could. And so I started out by looking for freelance writing jobs. So I went to freelance job boards. Some of them don't even exist anymore, but I did. I, I hit up job boards and a lot of them were job boards like problogger.net, which still exists. And they're a low barrier to entry. Most of the jobs that they offer don't pay particularly well, but most of the jobs on there are regular jobs where you will write somewhere between two and eight articles per month. 
and you'll have this ongoing work. And that's what I focused on in the beginning. And I did do some pitching and I did do some one-offs, but my main focus on building up that income and that regular income was looking for jobs that were recurring. My physics.com job, that was a recurring job. I was one article per week was due with them. They were one of my best paying clients and I knew I was going to get paid. And so that's what I did was look for those. And, and other websites like Media Bistro, that's a little bit of a higher barrier to entry. Those jobs are more in line with traditional publishing and freelancing. And so you might not have as many recurring jobs somewhere like that, but there are still a few there. So yeah, so I would just like kind of search these job boards for recurring gigs. And so can we give some folks context into like what kind of money we're talking about here? Okay. So, <laughs> so when I first started, I was happy to make 25 to $50 for an article of about 800 to a thousand words. Wow. And yeah, and that's pretty low by today's standards. And actually some of my first stuff was actually writing catalog descriptions, right? Because this was the dawn of the online marketing. And so I was writing catalog descriptions for like blind companies that wanted to put all of their Venetian blinds online or bamboo flooring or whatever. And those things were like $5 per 300 word description. Okay. Right. And so like something like that, I could do like a 300 word description, pump it out in 10 minutes, get five bucks. And if I do that for an hour, that's $30 an hour, which isn't terrible for a, a job you're doing at home on your own time. But today, like a lot of beginners can expect to get paid anywhere between $75 and $150 for an article of about a thousand words. And that's beginner. And that's for kind of beginning article specifically in the personal finance space. My rate starts closer to $450 to $500 for an article of that length. And then if you want me to actually interview sources, it's going to cost more. So it just sort of depends on what you're doing. It's still to some degree, the wild west out there. And it also depends on the niche you're in and the kind of writing you're doing. If I'm writing a press release or marketing copy, then I'm getting up closer to a dollar per word because that's very specialized writing. If you're doing white papers, that's technical writing. You can get paid more. I mean, some technical writers get paid two or $3 per word. If you're ghostwriting a book. So there's a lot in there and there's a lot of space in there and what you get depends on the outlet, the niche, the type of writing you're doing, your experience level, and whether or not you have credentials in that area, because all of that kind of mixes together. And so if you're just starting out, like going to a place where you can get 75 to 150 bucks to write an 800, 2000 word article, but they'll give you regular work. That's not a bad way to like start building a portfolio, earning a little extra money on the side and starting to ramp up a little bit. It's, it's not a lot and it kind of sucks, but at the same time, you're getting a foot in the door and $75 is not nothing. Right. Like that can fill you, up your gas tank for the, at the minimum, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing is if it takes you two or three hours to write this article and you get paid $75 for it for three hours, that's $25 an hour. Yeah. It's, and it's a lot more than the minimum wage. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you are building your income to a place where it's becoming consistent. What are you doing from like a debt saving investing perspective to also pursue this lifestyle design? Yeah. So this is <laughs> kind of where it depends on right where you're at. 
for me, I was fortunate in that when I first started freelancing, my ex and I decided the priority was for me to stay home and try and make this freelancing work. And we were willing to take student loans for his PhD until I could get it to work. And so we went ahead and used his student loans to cover most of our expenses. And then whatever I made was like the wants money. So that's kind of how we we structured it. We went ahead and said, okay, student loans are a tool that we can use to help with that. Uh, two years in, he got a fellowship. And so he started getting a stipend and didn't have to pay tuition. And so we didn't need the student loans anymore. So that was nice. So I think that's one of the things that we did look at. Now we did end up with some debt. We had moved a couple of times. There were months where we were just like, yeah, we're, we're going to spend more than we earn this month. We're going to have some credit card debt. And we did do that. And we didn't always manage as well as we should have. And so when I started earning more money, that's when I was like, okay, I want to make sure I focus on putting a little extra toward paying down debt. My ex and I didn't always see eye to eye on how quickly we wanted to pay down debt. And so we ended up using kind of what some people call a debt siege method, which means- you can break that down for us. What does that mean? A lot of people have heard of like a debt snowball where you or, you know, you keep paying your minimum payments, you order your debts from smallest to biggest, and then you pay as much as you can each month toward one debt until it's retired. And then you roll it on and then you have your debt avalanche where you order them by highest interest rate to lowest interest rate. A debt siege is more of a slow burn. Instead of saying every single extra penny that I make goes toward paying down debt, it just says, well, I'm going to accept that I'm going to take longer to pay down my debt, but I'm still putting extra toward my debt payment. So we basically ended up putting about half of what we could have put toward our debt. We ended up putting about half of it there. The good news is, is about this time, I started learning about investing a little bit more. And I was just like, I'm opening a Roth IRA. And I'm going to take half of the money that we're not putting toward our debt pay down since we've decided we're going to do it as slow as possible to be comfortable because that's the kind of people we are. I said, I'm going to put half of this money that we could be putting toward debt payment, but we're not. I'm going to put half of that toward investing and starting growing my IRA. And the thing that I noticed was we were getting dividends put in there. It was multiplying. And pretty soon I was just like, okay, I want to be able to put more in there but I don't feel comfortable doing it with this high interest debt. So then we started putting that other, that remaining amount toward debt. When we saw the results that we could get with investing, that galvanized us to stay like, okay, all right, we're going to take the remainder of what we should have been paying on our debt each month. And we're really going to do it. <laughs> and, and that helped. Once we were done with that, we were able to move forward. But Along the way, we did have, it is kind of difficult to plan in this situation because my ex did not have benefits with his job. So we had to pay for insurance on the open market. And originally this was before the Affordable Care Act. So that was an issue. And then once the Affordable Care Act passed, I actually went on the exchange and started getting that started using a health savings account, made sure I got a high deductible plan. A health savings account is a great tool for somebody, in a, well, anybody who, who qualifies. It's the truly tax-free money. And so started using a health savings account in conjunction with our high deductible plan and just sort of moving forward with that. But it does take planning and it does take a little bit of realism. And that's why I talk about being so mediocre, right? Because I had, we didn't have a ton of debt. Like we weren't like, I've got $150,000 in debt that I have to pay down in 18 months. We had a much more modest amount of debt. We probably could have paid down in 18 months, but it took us 24 <laughs> and well, no, closer to 30. 
<laughs> 30 months. Yeah, as if that's like so much longer, you know, like right. in the grand scheme of life. But I think part of our situation was looking at it and saying like, look, let's be practical about this. Both my ex and I, we are not going to agree on this total austere lifestyle to tackle our debt. We're not going to be able to agree on that. We're going to be miserable and angry and fighting with each other if one of us tries to enforce that. Plus, we've got a son and I'm not going to deny him the opportunity to play baseball because we are tackling our debt. So we just took a very practical kind of realistic approach about it and said, okay, how can we manage this? How can we make progress toward paying down our debt and building up our assets? How can we make progress without completely depriving ourselves. Because one of the things that we learn right through psych money psychology and any type of psychology is once you start completely depriving yourself, you get to a point where you just can't anymore. Yeah. And then you binge. Sabotage <laughs> begins. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I love the measured approach because it's just like knowing who you are, knowing your personality, knowing the way that you interact with money, like going to the extreme you knew was not going to work. And it's just like, why am I even going to set up myself for failure? Like, let's just be right. realistic. And that's kind of how we approached it. And even today, I still kind of approach things that way. Obviously, like the debt I have is I buy new cars with uh, low rate. That is sacrilegious in the personal financing. <laughs> I do. And I do. And I, I get those fuckers for five years and I don't pay it off early. Um, <laughs> No, because because I look at it and say like, okay, wh what are the tools I have at my disposal for the things that I want to have? And so like I've done this twice now with new Subaru Outbacks. And when I got the Subaru Outback in 2011, I kept it for 10 years. And then I traded it in as my down payment <laughs> <laughs> and got a new one in 2021 and used dealer financing at a low interest rate. It, you know, it wasn't an amazing interest rate. Like some people like get their little whatever, but it's a 2.49% interest rate. Well, I can tell you that over the next five years, losses in 2022 for the stock market, notwithstanding in the next five years, I can earn way more just leaving my money in the market than putting it into a car that's just going to depreciate. In five years, the car will be paid off and I'll have it for another five years, at which point I will turn it in and use it as my down payment. And it's, because the thing is, is it's like, okay, well, how am I using the money to help me meet my lifestyle goals without completely going broke? And, you know, Joe Salcihai from Stacking Benjamins, you know, once said like, hey, like he does this with people talking about their houses, right? Like, okay, I have enough money in my investment account that I could pay off my house right now, but I'm earning more money in the investments. So I'm going to go ahead and keep the mortgage. And if I ever get uncomfortable, I can still pay it off. If something happens and I'm in a bind, I have enough money in my investment account that I can just pay off my car and it'll be fine. But for now, I personally, with my risk tolerance and my own personal financial values, feel like the money is better served growing in the investment account than paying down this car that like yeah. paying off the yeah. car. And that's kind of the essence there. For the most part, I still have some student loans. My student loans are from way back before the federal government was in charge of them. So I have a 1.9% interest rate on my student loans. There's no reason to prioritize that. And they'll be paid off in 2030. Mm -hmm. So I'm just like, eh. <laughs> I'll let get to ride. them when I get to them. <laughs> I'll let it ride. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's yeah. contrary to a lot of the 
go ham type of advice that you see on personal finance content that is just like, become debt free at all costs, go and live on ramen noodles. And once you're free of debt, then you can go and live your life. And it's just like, y'all, we don't, really don't have to be that extreme. Like at yeah. all. And I, and I think too, the, the important thing to note, and somebody pointed out this to me is that like, look, yes, like, okay, you're, you're financing your cars, but at the same time, you are one of the few people who isn't just financing your car and then spending the money. You're leaving the money in an investment account, right? Like, <laughs> like so so that's the other side of the coin there is you know being very deliberate about why you're doing it and the process you're using to make these decisions it's right. very important to be deliberate and intentional about how you're moving forward with this yeah so i'm curious because you know you did mention a divorce how did that deal you know blow potentially to your finances <laughs> They actually got better. <laughs> really? Okay, let's dive in. Tell us more. I mean, to a certain extent. So because I was the primary breadwinner, and the other thing that helps, the other thing that helps, and I'm going to use this as a big caveat, and this is another reason why I talk about so much of my finances and so much of what goes on in my financial life as being so very mediocre and everything is because, so my ex-husband, we are friends. When I was in Philadelphia a couple of weeks ago, we literally had dinner and caught up. And so even when he asked for the divorce, he wasn't a dick about it. He wanted to feel comfortable because I made more than he did. He wanted to feel comfortable because he was staying in Philly and we knew I was moving to Idaho and he wanted to feel comfortable. So I went ahead and I put a nice chunk of money in his, in a separate account we opened for him. I paid his rent for that summer. I made sure he had enough money for rent uh, in his own apartment for that summer until the school year started up. He's, he's a college professor. And I paid off the credit card balances that we had. We had a personal loan at the time left over from one of our moves. I just assumed the personal loan debt uh, myself. And, and I assumed, well, I was keeping the car. And so I kept the loan on the car as well. And then, yeah, because it was just before the car was going to be paid off. So I assumed that. And then there were a couple other small debts. Like I said, when we first were going to school, it was all private loans. And I actually co-signed on one of his student loans. And instead of turning that over to him to finish off, I just went ahead and assumed that to finish it off. And that way he felt comfortable enough in his finances that we just went ahead and I filed for divorce when I moved to Idaho. I'm at, he asked for the divorce, but I'm the one who actually filed the paperwork. But I filed for divorce in Idaho because Idaho makes it very easy. If you've already split all of your assets and you already agree on child issues, they basically just rubber stamp you. And so, and it was very easy. He didn't ask for alimony. We just got the minimum required by statute for child support that he sent because I had my son the whole time. It was just very easy. And so even though I assumed some of these debts and left him with a clean slate, it was all debt that I could afford and that I didn't have a hard time affording. It was all very low interest debt. None of the debt was above 6% interest rate. So I didn't bother with it. And then I took out another small personal loan to cover my moving costs to move from Philadelphia back to Idaho and, and get set up in Idaho. Because like for me, getting a, a low rate loan of 7% or less, for me, that meant I could leave my money growing long-term in the stock market. Did I have enough money in the, in the market in my various accounts to cover these things and pay them off? Yes. But they were low. 
And I was like, now I'm going to keep the money in the market doing its thing long term because I can handle these payments. And if I ever feel like I'm ready, then I can do something else. I can change what I'm doing with it. Yeah. So that's kind of how that went. The biggest impact it actually had was a stupid mistake I made just a few years ago because instead of paying off the debt that I kept, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do the things. So my ex and I have different values when it comes to spending. Like one's not right or wrong. I prefer travel and experiences. He likes to stay at home. He likes buying things. He likes to have the big TV and all that kind of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just two different priorities. And so he never wanted to travel when we were married. So I did. I took the opportunity the couple years after the divorce to be like, okay, instead of paying off this debt, I am going to go on a Viking river cruise with my son. I am going to go on a two week trip across Canada. I am going to do these things. And so after I'd done these things, I was like, okay, I should probably consolidate this debt and address it. And so got one of those offers in the mail that was like, consolidate your debt at 3.5% and blah, blah, blah. And so I called, they said, sure, we'll send you the paperwork. And I didn't read the paperwork properly. I just signed, 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 signed. It turned out it was a debt settlement program. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That's how I switch you out, babes. <laughs> and, uh, and I actually wrote about this and actually talked about it as well on CNBC. And then I actually wrote about it for my own blog. So it's out there. You can read about my stupidity and how I didn't pay attention to the details. And I just went ahead and electronically signed the paperwork, sent it back. And then about, I don't know, like a year, 18 months later, I think I'm making payments, right? Like I'm making payments. I think like, yes, we've consolidated this debt. We're about done. Hooray, hooray. And I get a notice that I'm being sued for what I owe. And I was like, what? Oh, (laughs) What happened here? So I went back. I was like, but I was like, no, no, this is one of the ones that's included in my debt consolidation loan. This isn't right. I'm making payment. Like this should have been paid off. And then I went back, I reviewed the paperwork. I looked at everything and I went, oh, well, shit. (laughs) And I hadn't been checking. And that's the other thing I hadn't been doing is I'd left off because I was like, well, I don't need credit anytime soon. So I'd left off checking my credit report. And so it just turned into this mess of now I have terrible credits. (laughs) And anyway, all of that debt settlement mess has been resolved and taken care of, pushed out the door. It's a good learning lesson for folks. A lot of content, I'm sure, came out of that experience. 100%, yes. And like I said, (laughs) I'm very open about how, like, yes, I am this person who has been writing about money. I'm a personal finance expert. For the most part, I have my own money under control. But if you're not paying attention, if you don't read the fine print, then that's how they get to then this happens and this is especially something just kind of side note for neurodivergent people to be aware of right i have adhd i thought something was happening the way it was supposed to happen i didn't read through the stuff i was busy i was distracted didn't do what i should have done and just electronically signed all of the documents without properly paying attention to detail so just be aware my neurodivergent friends yeah. <laughs> that, that sometimes <laughs> these things will bite you in the ass. (laughs) And this is very comforting to know that like you can be a quote unquote money nerd. You can be a personal finance enthusiast and still not always get it right. 100%. I think we need more of those stories because there's so many assumptions that like we always have shit figured out. And I promise you it's not, it's not the case. (laughs) Right. Yes. All right. So let's talk to folks who are in the position where you found yourself all those years ago 
feeling like I don't know what the hell I'm doing with my money. I don't know what I, <laughs> what I should be doing. What's one thing that folks can start doing today that's going to start getting them on the path to financial enlightenment, if you will? <laughs> <laughs> I think the first thing to do is sit down and really think about what you value and what your priorities are. Because one of the things that hit me early on as I was looking around going, I wish I could travel more. I was looking around going, okay, but here's a pile of like knickknacks that I bought on a whim that I don't even care about. And so I started toting up the cost of those things. And I'm like, well, shit, <laughs> that's a trip to Europe. And that really got me to take a step back and really think about, okay, let's talk about the, the first thing you need to do is be really honest about what do I want? What do I value? Because that's where all of this starts is saying, okay, what do I want? What do I value? And then you can start saying, how do you, I use my money as a tool to get there? Then you can decide, start figuring out how do I divide up my financial resources and direct those financial resources toward the things I value most. And that's the thing is, is actually just sitting down and getting really clear about what matters to you, what's important to you, what your values are, and then using those to guide, okay, so my money is a tool. How do I use that money to reflect my values and direct my resources into what matters to me? Mm, I love that advice. Now, I'm curious, as someone who is a freelancer, who's essentially a business owner, how do you manage your money? Like, are you a sinking fund type of person? Like, what's the strategy that you use to manage your money as a business owner? Yeah. So, uh, have a nice combination of things. So, I mean, I do have like, you know, the separate business account. I do elect as an S corp on my taxes. So I do pay myself a salary. So I do have all of that kind of divided up and set up. But what I have is I have different accounts with different purposes. So I guess it's kind of like sinking funds in a way. I have an account that is my long-term emergency fund. And that is actually in a taxable investment account. This is not for everybody, but that's where I put my long-term emergency fund. So I keep in a like high yield account. I keep somewhere between, depending on how I'm feeling and where I'm at, somewhere between four and six weeks worth of expenses. And that's enough to cover anything immediately that comes up while giving me time to liquidate some of the stuff in my investment account to move over and to use. So there's that. I also have a travel fund. Once again, taxable investment. Everything's in a taxable investment account. That's that, very interesting to me. That way, when I sell at a loss, at least my vacation is now tax deductible. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, wow. Okay. Like, I am taking notes here. <laughs> like when it, it, like, no, seriously, like at 22, when there was a big dip, I was like, well, I've been doing some travel. Yeah. I put the, tra I put the travel on a rewards credit card, get my little pointy points, and then I sell the investments to pay off the credit card. And you take that loss and write off some taxes. Yeah. And like, there were a few years there where I ended up having to pay a capital gains tax because mm -hmm. there were gains. That's yeah. what happens sometimes. But the nice thing is, is like when you're selling $5,000 worth of investments to pay off your trip, the gains are actually fairly small. And, they, mm. it, it, and you know, they're long-term capital gains because you sell stuff that you had in the past, like more than a year ago. And so they're actually reasonably small because I'm not selling huge chunks here to pay my travel or to cover, you know, or for instance, in 2010, when our basement 
flooded. This was back when we owned a home. Our basement flooded with groundwater and the insurance isn't going to cover your groundwater invasion. We went into the long-term emergency fund to cover that cost. It was about $3,000 and, but it was 2010. So everything was down. And so we logged a loss on that. 2012 to 2015, great bullish years for the stock market. And, you know, when I did sell stuff to pay for trips or whatever, I did log some gains, but they were relatively small and they were things that I could handle. Like you should really, before you use this method, you should really think about it. But, you know, here in 2022, I was able to look at the things and say, oh, look, some of these are down and I can sell some of these shares at a loss. And I shall do so. And now I have a tax deductible vacation. Isn't that nice? This is the hack of hacks, y'all. I'm like, so yeah. So basically I just have a set amount that I go toward these goals that matter to me. So like the travel fund, there's a set amount of money each month that goes to the travel fund. There's a set amount of money each month that goes to the long-term emergency fund. And then there's a set amount that goes to the tax advantage retirement. So I'm at a SEP IRA now. Since I don't qualify for a Roth anymore, I'm at a SEP IRA now. And then there's a set amount of money that goes toward maxing out my health savings account each month. So I just have these different goals that help me move forward and manage my money. And it goes toward that each month. And then I have- setting aside money for taxes as well, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So the nice thing about having the S-Corp election is I actually use Gusto to manage my payroll. And so they actually take the taxes out of my paycheck. So they pay- like I, I pay 45 bucks a month, but they handle my state taxes because I have unemployment insurance. Like if I wanted to lay myself off, <laughs> I could collect <laughs> unemployment at this point, but they handle all of that. They handle the state and the federal taxes and they pay it and they take care of all of that administrative stuff. But yes, yeah. before I took the S-Corp election, I set between 25 and 30% of my paycheck each month to pay taxes. And that's kind of a general rule of thumb that you'll hear a lot of creators talk about is between 25 and 30% each month to cover your state, local, and federal taxes. Yeah. That's really insightful. Thanks for sharing. And it's always so interesting to see how different people create this whole financial system. So very, very insightful. Now, I know folks are going to want to find out so much more about you, about freelancing, about using money for lifestyle design. So I'd love for you to tell folks how we can interact with you, where we can find you, and maybe what are some of the latest projects that you've been working on? Yeah. So you can find me at MirandaMarkwit.com. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at MMarkwit. So not my full name, just MMarkwit. So those are kinds of the places where I'm most active. And then recently released the second edition of my book on beginning freelancing and how to start freelancing. I did that back in June of 2022. It's the second edition. It's almost twice as big as the first edition. And it has a lot of updates, a lot of new stories, and a lot of new ways to move forward because freelancing changed so much. I released the first edition of the book in 2013, so almost 10 years ago. And so so I released the second edition. So it's updated. It has extra content and extra helpful hints that reflect what has changed. So go ahead and grab that. And then I am also working on a Kindle Vela. It's anyway, it's whatever. Uh, On solo travel, as a woman, a lot of people have asked me about how do you travel solo? You probably know a lot about now since your situation changed. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. 
yeah, it's wonderful. It's fabulous. A lot of freedom there. You don't have to worry about making sure some dude is happy. Um, <laughs> do what you want. So I have that. It's not done yet, but like you can read the chapters that are there or whatever. And then finally, I do have a mini course up on Gumroad because I'm lazy. So I just use Gumroad because I'm lazy. Uh, but I do have a mini course up on Gumroad about how to build and maintain a travel fund because a lot of people ask me about that. A lot of people ask me about my travel fund specifically because I do use it to travel so much. So yeah. we'll make sure to link all of those resources in the episode show notes. And I think I want to close out with this question for you, Miranda. Okay. <laughs> As someone who is in the process of writing my first book and mm. definitely experiencing bouts of like, why the fuck am I doing this? How can I continue to keep writing? I'm exhausted. Where are these ideas going to keep coming from? How do you get past writer's block or creative block? Because I can imagine that happens for somebody who literally makes their living writing. Yeah, it can get rough. I think one of the biggest things for me when it comes to overcoming writer's block specifically is to take a break. I mean, you probably hear this a lot. This is like one of those common things to do. Like some people are like, just like power through, power through, write shitty things, and then you can fix it in the edit later. I personally find that trying to power through, I just get distracted more and find myself like annoyed and on the phone anyway, like, you know, checking Facebook or whatever. And so what I normally do is I just take a break and I go for a walk. I like, so for me, being outside helps get things going. Movement helps get things going. I think everybody has their own thing, but for me, being outside and having movement helps. And so I will take a break. I will put on a fun podcast that I like to listen to, not a serious podcast, and it has nothing to do with whatever it is I'm working on, just a fun podcast and I'll go out and I will take a walk. And when I get back, I'm either in the mood to write or I'm like, nope, it's really not happening. And so I get a good night's sleep and tackle it fresh the next day. And part of doing that, if you are a freelancer or if you're on a deadline is making sure that you build in time to be early, right? So the deadline I put for myself in my own schedule for articles I'm writing or deadlines that I have is actually uh, between two and three days ahead of when it's actually due. To give and, yourself some of that breathing room. Just and, in case. Yep. And that gives me breathing room to say like, it ain't working today. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to go to trivia tonight and drink some wine and have some cheese and get a good night's sleep. And first thing in the morning, this is the first thing I'll work on. Yeah. I love that flexibility that you build into your schedule because the procrastination sometimes can be our worst enemy. And I think that definitely shuts things down way more than just giving yourself a break. Oh, 100%. Yeah. This has been such an insightful conversation. I'm just fascinated by this idea of like making freelancing your career. I want more folks to really consider that that's probably the direction that the world is moving in, right? Especially when we think about things like the gig economy, mm. content creator economy, like this super structured corporate job situation is just not the thing that appeals to a lot of people anymore. And I love this world of freelancing to just really allow you to monetize things that you're passionate about, but also doing it in a way that feels authentic to you. And there's so many options out there. So I can't wait for folks to find out 
all of your backstory because we could be here for days <laughs> talking about all your different experiences, but we're going to make sure to link all of the awesome resources that you've put together in order to really equip folks to seriously consider this as a career. So thank you for being here. Awesome. Thank you so much. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, sign up for our free 14 page guide, The Financially Lit Latina The Ultimate Blueprint for Becoming Poderosa with Your Dinero. This 14 page guide includes our best tips on money mindset budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of the Financially Lit Latina, just head over to yoquierodineropodcast.com slash start. That's yoquierodineropodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered. Stay inspired and stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated contents constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.